us. As Paul says in Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of the beloved son. Our main point this morning is that Jesus has sought us out and he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into his kingdom. He did this through his perfect life, his sacrificial death for us and his resurrection from the dead as well. And we're going to see this as we look at this passage this morning through three lenses. We're going to look at three lenses uh, applied to this passage this morning. First, we're going to look at the man. Then we're going to look at the Messiah. And lastly, we're going to look at the mission. So three M's for you, man, Messiah, and mission. First of all, the man. Look again with me at verses two through five, if if you will. Uh, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Mark before, you know that Mark loves to tell stories quickly. Everything is immediately here and there. Jesus is moving from place to place, encountering people, and then immediately, just a few verses later, moving on to the next thing, the next place, the next encounter, the next parable, the next healing. He, Mark tells his stories very quickly, and he often doesn't give very much detail when he tells stories. So what's really interesting is that here in in the verses that we just read, Mark slows down, slows down the story to give us three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5, three verses worth of information just about this one man. He tells us all kinds of things about them, but there's a reason for that. Mark wants to show us the depths of the wretchedness of this man. He wants us to see the the, the horrible state that he is in that results from spiritual oppression. He wants us to to understand and grasp the depth and, and the horrific nature of what Satan can do if he's given the opportunity. We're first told that this man has an unclean spirit. Later in the passage, then, of course, we're told that there's actually more than just one. In verse 9, the demon names himself as legion, for we are many. You know, a Roman legion had between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers in it. But that, the point is not so much the precise number. The, the point is that this man is utterly overwhelmed. There is no way, just like the, uh, the, uh, the natives of Judea were under the boot of the Roman legions. So this man is under the thumb and the oppression of these satanic hosts. They are entrenched and powerful and violent. And his spiritual bondage is is so comprehensive. It's so pervasive that it's almost as if you can't separate the man from the monster within. If you look at verses 9 and 10, 
The pronouns keep switching between singular and plural. He speaks, the demon speaks. He speaks, the demon speaks. Right? And their violence has driven this man from society. He's a danger to himself and to all those around him. Now, when the townspeople try to shackle him and chain him and restrain him, he wrenches apart the chains and breaks the shackles. He's supernaturally strong. No one can subdue him. No one can stop him. No one can keep him. And no one can help him either. So he, he, he lives in the tombs outside of town. And as a reminder, these tombs weren't the elaborate monuments that we see in our cemeteries and graveyards today. These are caves on the side of cliffs in Judea. You know, these caves were places of uncleanness. You only went there to bury someone, to deposit the bones. And so this man is isolated. He's unclean. He's shut out from society. And he's cut off from everyone that he once knew. But then it goes even deeper because he can't even hide from himself, as it were. He can't hide from the voices. He's racked with inner torments as well. He, this man runs wild, and uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us naked as well. He's, he, he runs wild among the tombs, along the hillsides, screaming out night and day. And maybe driven by fear and despair, maybe driven by the demons, um, maybe driven by a desire to control something about his life, he cuts himself again and again with sharp stones just to feel something have some sense of control over his situation. He's bent on self-destruction in every area of his life. He's alone, naked, bleeding, living amongst the dead. Now, some of you here this morning, you, you, you may not be Christians, and you may be feeling pity for this man, but you're wondering, okay, what does this man... 2,000 years ago have, have to do with me today. Now, yes, it's, it's a horrible situation. But here's the thing. As a pastor friend of mine once said, we are more like this man than we think. We're able to mask our problems. He isn't. We're on the same road. He's just further along it than we are. This man represents who we are apart from Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we all are. Or if you're a Christian, 
were. Consciously or not, we were dead in sin. And following the prince of the power of the air, we were like this man, Paul says. Now you might be thinking to yourself, but I'm not like this man. I'm not possessed. And I would agree with you. Right. Um, the word possessed, it's here in our English translations, but it's not actually in, in the passage. The, the English translations have to kind of add it to help us understand what's going on, but the word isn't there in, in, in the original language, in the Greek. Um, the word just means be, ha, being influenced or oppressed by demons in some way. So this, this isn't like the exorcists. They're like, you know, spinning heads or something like that. That's not what this is, what's going on here. Rather, it's that you're under the influence of forces hostile to God and hostile to you as well, to people who are made in the image of God. They're bent on your destruction. And here's the thing. You open the door to their influence whenever you worship someone or something other than God. Whenever you stubbornly turn your back on God and prioritize uh, your ambitions, your own desires and priorities, whenever you prioritize your goals over his, it's like cracking open the door. And that's why God warned Cain in Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must have mastery over it. It's crouching like a lion, as 1 Peter 5 says, seeking someone to devour. And it doesn't matter if you think of yourself as a nice person either. Sorry to have to tell you that. Um, Cain thought he was. The Pharisees thought they were as well, that they were good and upstanding and moral people too. But Jesus says about them, you are of your father, the devil, for he was a liar from the beginning. See, we are really good at, at masking our sins, at manufacturing fig leaves for ourselves to cover up what's actually going on inside so that outwardly we look normal. Dressed in our Sunday best here, worshiping God. Um, but friends, in this man, the mask is stripped away. The fig leaves are stripped away, and we all stand exposed before the all-seeing eye of the holy God. In this man, we see the picture of the person who's not trusting in Christ. If you're not trusting in Christ this morning, friends, if, if you're trusting in your goodness, if you're trusting in anything else to give you a sense of peace, a sense of virtue, a sense of standing and acceptance other than Christ. Friends, it's, it's a mask. And it cannot sustain the weight that you are putting on it. Just like that bridge earlier. If a, if a rope had been cut, it would not have withstood Will's weight when he stepped upon it. It will fall. And you will fall too. There's hope and forgiveness in the cross of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But first, before we move on to the next point, I just briefly want to address a question that, that uh, Christians always have about this. Does this mean that a Christian can somehow be possessed by a demon 
or something like that? And, and the answer is no. You can't be controlled by a demon. Um, for the Apostle John makes clear in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within you. Not some demon. And he bears witness to your spirit that you belong to Jesus, that your inheritance is in heaven. Um, And though you may fall into sin, we're assured that we'll never fully and finally fall away. This is the conversation Jesus had with Peter the night that he was betrayed. Satan had asked to sift Peter like wheat, remember, as they were on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus says this to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And friends, Jesus is right now praying at the Father's right hand that your faith might not fail and that you will appear before him complete in the day of Jesus Christ. So that's the first point, that the man. And that then leads us to the second point, the Messiah. The Messiah. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? Well, there are several things I could suggest, but I think the most important is this. Jesus doesn't provide simplistic uh, solutions. He doesn't provide simplistic solutions. He provides himself. How does Jesus heal this guy? How does Jesus heal him? Think about it. He doesn't come whispering incantations. He, does, he basically does everything. He doesn't do anything that the movies would suggest that this is what you need to do to get rid of demons. Right? He doesn't come whispering incantations. He doesn't sprinkle holy water. Um, he doesn't uh, wave around garlic or, or offer a sacrifice. Um, he doesn't use a silver bullet or pull out his crossbow. Um, that's, he doesn't do any of that. Um, he also, though, notice, doesn't offer the guy a, a 12-step program of recovery. He doesn't give him the number of a good psychiatrist. Not saying that, that, that there's nothing perhaps to gain from uh, medical resources, but, but what does Jesus do? He commands the demons, and the demons obey. And more than simply obey, they have to grovel at his feet. You know, we start to get hints of this back in verse 2. Back in verse 2, it says that when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man with an unclean spirit. And that word met there isn't a sort of, well, how do you do? You know, meeting someone for the first time, right? The, the, the word actually has the idea of, of a violent encounter. It, it was used uh, of uh, opposing armies, uh, meeting in battle, okay? So what you need to have in your mind is not this demon-possessed naked guy sort of sauntering up to Jesus. He's charging him. He's running at him. He's, this is how he's meeting him. And so as soon as Jesus gets off the boat in verse 2 on that side of the shore, this demonically inspired, supernaturally powerful, vicious opponent sees him and starts running at him. And you can kind of picture the scene. Because then, suddenly, Mark dramatically pauses, sort of like in a movie, pauses full frame, an action shot, and he cuts away and gives you three verses of background about the guy. 
who this is who's racing at Jesus. And then Mark pushes play again. And the guy starts, again, you get, comes right back to him running and racing at Jesus and at the disciples. And, and you have this wild-eyed, bloody, naked guy running at Jesus. And you can imagine the disciples as they're like half in, half out of the boat, and they see this guy racing down the hillside at them. And they're like, Jesus, maybe we should get back in. You know, this would be a good time to like leave. Come on, Jesus, what do, what do, we, do you see him. That's what's going on as this is happening. But as one commentator put it, the explosive terror of the demoniac does not prevail. For rather than falling on Jesus, he falls on his knees and shouts at the top of his voice, swear to God that you won't torture me. When demoniac meets divine, it is a no contest event. See, unlike the Pharisees, the demons know who Jesus is. They know who he is. It's uh, interesting. The Pharisees on multiple occasions said that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan, to which Jesus responded, wait, what? what? This doesn't make sense, guys. Like, if Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom cannot stand. A house divided will fall. Guys, this doesn't make any sense, right? I'm not who you think I am. But the demons know who Jesus is. They know that he is the son of the most high God. They know that he is the word of the father, the author authoritative, all-powerful word who created them in the beginning. And when he calls to them, all they can do is come limping like a dog calls to his, comes to his master's whistle. This is all the demons can do. Jesus, the king speaks, and they must listen. Jesus, the king commands, and the man is cleansed. But what's with their comment about Jesus torturing them? Swear to God that you won't torture us. Well, it's small, <clears throat> but I think it gives us an insight into their expectations for the Messiah, for who Jesus is and what he's about. Because the demons, like everyone else in Palestine, the demons know that, that they know the scriptures, and they know that the scriptures promise a Messiah who would come, uh, someone clothed with the power of God to set up the kingdom of God. Here's the thing, though. No one. Not the demons, not even the Jews, thought that God would uh, send this person twice. The first time in mercy to save sinners, and then the second time in power to judge the world. So when Jesus showed up in a boat on their side of the, the, the Sea of Galilee, they thought the day of judgment had come. They thought the day of the Lord was here. But in truth, they, they weren't far off. Judgment day had come, but not for everyone, just for Jesus. To deliver this man from darkness, Jesus had to suffer the darkness himself. To deliver this man from judgment day, Jesus had to undergo judgment day for 
him, like this man, Jesus is stripped and made naked. Like this man, Jesus is cut and gashed and bloodied, not from stones, but from the whips of the Romans. Like this man, Jesus is forsaken by friends and by his family. And on the cross, he even cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like this man, he cries out in agony. And like this man, he goes into the tomb. You see, Jesus is not simply the authoritative king, friends. He's also the suffering servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might be healed, so that we might have new life, and that we might live for righteousness. Jesus offers you and me a solution as deep and as wide as our problem itself. The solution is him. His whole self. Everything about him. And friends, I don't know what you're experiencing in this past week, what you're going, about to go through in this coming week, but friends, if you're here today and you are empty, you're feeling like this man, know that there is an answer. There is one that you can turn to who has given everything for you out of love and care for you to restore you and renew you and to see you made whole again. The darkness does not have the last word. He breaks our bondage to sin and to Satan. And he gives us himself as a new master, a Lord whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light because he bore the burden for us. And that brings us to the last point, the mission. There's a question here which is begging to be asked. And it's really obvious, actually, but it's, 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 it's sort of hiding under the text. Why is Jesus there in the first place? Why is he on this side of the Sea of Galilee? It's the wrong side, the Gentile side, the side where they raise pigs, which are unclean animals. It's the side where you wouldn't find good and proper and upstanding Jews. And it's interesting, if you go back to the end of chapter 4, or sorry, to the middle of chapter 4, we find that Jesus had every reason to stay on the other side of the Sea of Galilee because he left massive, thronging crowds who are listening to his teaching and hanging on his every word, every parable. They're in awe at his authority. Who is like this? Who speaks like this? Where does he get this authority from? He has massive crowds following him. And what does he do? He leaves to go to the other side of the lake. Was this just a whim? Was he expecting revival to break out when he got to the other side? Well, it didn't happen. Right? The only person, the, the greeting party is this naked, bloody, uh, insane guy who comes racing to him. 
And then, after the demons are cast out, after the pigs go into the sea, uh, the shepherds go, the pig herders go, and tell the townspeople, the townspeople come, and they beg him to leave. Go away. We don't want you here. And Jesus obliges. In verse 21, he packs up, goes back across the sea to the other side, and picks up where he left off. Why is he there? in the first place. Was this a whim? I don't think so. I think this was intentional. I think this was planned. Jesus, friends, was on a mission. Friends, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee for this one man. He crossed the sea to seek and to save this one wretched man from his misery and bondage. He left the acclaim of the crowds, braved the storm, the storm on the sea, silenced it, braved the wrath of demons who opposed him, endured the shaming of the townspeople who told him to get out to rescue this one man. To rescue him. That's the love of our Savior for lost and helpless sinners. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And here you see it played out in real life before our eyes. He goes to seek and to save that which was lost. He had a sheep which needed to be rescued, and no barrier was too difficult. No distance was too great. No obstacle was too high that he would not surmount it to seek and save this one lost sheep. God, and friends, this morning, Jesus is able to bring healing to even the most broken and hurting of us here this morning as well. But Jesus doesn't just fulfill his mission and then return he gave this man a mission too, verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Friends, that's, Jesus works the same way today. He rescues us on his mission and then gives us a mission too, a great commission. It's not fancy or flashy. You don't have to learn Four spiritual laws. You don't have to memorize things, per se. All you need to do is do what this man do does. Thinking about what Jesus has done for you. Reflecting on it. And then going and telling others what Jesus has done for us. That's the heart of Christian mission. That's the heart of Christian witness. Go and tell others about what I have done for you. We have the privilege of bearing witness in this coming week to Jesus as well. Let's pray.